Thanksgiving weekend, 2010. Michiganders are shocked to learn of the disappearance of the Skelton brothers. Their father, John Skelton, he claimed that Alexander, Andrew, and Tanner Skelton were unharmed, that he'd relocated them to a family in an underground network, a place where the boys would be safe and loved, but far away from the influence of their mother, Tanya Zuvers. Despite multiple searches in southern Michigan and in northern Ohio, the Skelton brothers are still missing a decade later. There has been no sign or sighting of the children since 2010. Their father sits in prison, locked away at the Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility in Ionia. John Skelton could be up for parole later this year, and his sentence will end in 2025, when the youngest of his three boys would be 18 years old. Skelton was charged with unlawful imprisonment for the disappearance of his three children. There isn't evidence to charge him with a more serious crime. Skelton pled no contest to the charges, and the judge handed down the harshest sentence that she could. And it's possible that Alexander, Andrew, and Tanner are still alive, that they're being raised in secrecy, homeschooled. Perhaps they are living among the Amish or another isolative group. Unfortunately, it's also possible that the boys are dead, murdered by their father, their remains concealed for a decade. Today's story, The Disappearance of Timothy Pitson, it bears a striking resemblance to the case of the Skelton brothers. Of course, Timothy was an only child, and his mother, who was his kidnapper, she's deceased. She took her own life after taking Timothy away from his father and the family who loved him. But just like John Skelton, Amy Pitson was able to make a little boy disappear and leave a path of grief, anguish, and questions in his place. So come with me to the spring of 2004, when 35-year-old Amy Fry learns that she's pregnant, and a tragic course of events begins to unfold. Amy Fry was born May 3, 1968, to parents Lee and Alana. Amy grew up in Illinois, raised in the northern suburbs of Chicago alongside her sister Kara and brother Brian. After graduating from high school, she headed off to Iowa State University. In 1988, when she was barely 20 years old, she married her first husband, Michael. The marriage, it didn't last, and the pair were divorced in 1991. In 1995, Amy married a second time, to Greg. The marriage was marked by Amy's emotional instability and mental health issues. According to Greg, Amy would attempt suicide at least once during the marriage. Greg reported that Amy parked her car on the railroad tracks at a busy crossing. Before the train could come along and end her life, she took a deep breath, put the car in gear, and drove herself to the hospital for evaluation. I can't say if she was admitted to the hospital for inpatient treatment of her issues, but she was prescribed a course of antidepressants. Amy would take the medication for a couple of years, but as Y2K arrived, it marked the end of her marriage to Greg, and in addition to ending her marriage, she also stopped taking her medication. It was in 2002 or maybe 2003 that Amy met James Pitson at a party. They hit it off, but they didn't live close to each other, so they did the long-distance dating thing for a while. Amy was four years older than James. And during their courtship, she told him about her struggle with depression, 
but Amy framed it as something that started after her divorce from Greg, not an issue she'd struggle with during and prior to the marriage. James believed that if Amy were in a loving, healthy relationship, like the relationship he saw the two of them building together, that she would be happy and healthy again. James underestimated Amy's mental health struggles, and he overestimated his ability to assist her in managing her issues. In 2003, Amy was again struggling with her mental health. She took an overdose of medication and sat on the edge of a cliff waiting for the pills to take effect. Amy did suffer a bad fall, but she was alive. She would receive mental health treatment at a hospital in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And during this time, James stood by Amy. He helped her through her recovery. In the spring of 2004, Amy learned that she was pregnant and the two decided to marry. The pregnancy was a surprise to the couple because James believed that he was sterile. He'd received chemotherapy treatments for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Learning that Amy was expecting was a wonderful surprise. And listeners, some sources say this is Amy's fourth marriage, where others say it is her third attempt at matrimony. Either way, James was not her first husband, but this was the first time she would become a mother, and the newlyweds were very happy and excited about the arrival of their son in October of 2004. They named the child Timothy James Pitson. Timothy James is a very traditional name, so Amy suggested adding a second M in Timothy to help him stand apart. As the newlyweds enjoyed life with their son, friends and loved ones described them as happy. They said that Amy loved her baby and her baby loved her. The family settled in Aurora, Illinois, one of the western suburbs of Chicago. Amy took a job with a property management company. And as Timothy grew up, his parents focused on his education, not just reading and numbers, but they taught him how to dial 911 and helped him memorize his home phone number and his home address. And listeners, I remember doing this with both of my children when they were about that age, you know, about the time they're going to start school. It's a good idea for kids to know these things in case they get separated from their families. And make a mental note of this, that Timothy learned his home phone number and his home address because it's going to come up again later. While Amy and James loved their little boy, married life was far from idyllic. James didn't like how frequently Amy was traveling with her friends. Amy's mental health issues returned, and she struggled with depression. When James pressed her to spend more time as a family and to address her mental health issues, she said she would divorce him. Maybe a divorce would help her feel better. In 2008, James caught Amy texting with one of her former husbands. Understandably upset, James asked her to make a choice. She could go to her ex, or she could choose to be part of their small family, the family meaning James, Amy, and Timothy. He told her that if she chose her ex, he would fight for custody of their son. Amy did not want to be separated from her child, so she stayed. And listeners, I think her mental health issues played a part in her decision to stay. Amy realized that if she left, if there was a divorce and a battle for Timothy, she may not be the custodial parent because of her emotional issues. It was better to stay in a marriage she was tired of rather than risk losing her child. From 2009 through 2011, Amy struggled with depression. Sometimes she would leave the house for a few days to get herself together. 
She would return home and things would be a bit better and then slowly devolve back into fighting and struggling and unhappiness. Amy loved Timothy and James loved Timothy, but Amy and James could not get their marriage on a good track. Timothy was easy to love, a dark-haired little boy with rosy cheeks and a winning smile. And Timothy was a lot like other kids his age. He loved playing with matchbox cars, going to the park and the playground. He palled around with neighborhood kids and thought go-kart rides were the coolest thing ever. The summer before he turned six, his parents decided it was time for him to learn to swim, and they put him in classes at a local pool. Timothy loved to splash around in the water, and he was making progress in his lessons. After time spent at the pool, he loved to eat either macaroni and cheese or get a kid's meal from his favorite fast food restaurant. In the fall of 2010, Timothy started kindergarten at Greenman Elementary School in Aurora. His dad often dropped him at school in the morning on his way into work. But by the end of April 2011, James and Amy were fighting again. Amy planned a cruise vacation to celebrate her 43rd birthday. Instead of celebrating with her husband and son, she traveled with one of her friends, leaving them behind. The decision to forsake her family for her friends and her own pleasure, this tracks right back to their earlier disagreements, where James wanted her to spend more time with the family and less time with friends. On Wednesday, May 11, 2011, James took Timothy to school, and it seemed like a typical day. When the father and son left home, Amy had already headed off to work at the property management firm. You can almost picture them, James and Timothy, in his car at the drop-off line, Timothy in the back seat, buckled in nice and safe, his Spider-Man backpack beside him, loaded up with his lunch and a snack, maybe some extra pencils and a pair of gloves in case the late spring weather turned cool. James watched Timothy as he exited the car. Maybe he called out that he loved him, that he would see Timothy later. And Timothy gave him a smile and a wave and a, Love you, Dad, as he put the backpack on his small shoulders and followed his classmates into the building. James Pitson had no way of knowing that this would be the last time he would see his son. On Wednesday, May 11th, 2011, James Pitson took his son to school, just like he does on most weekday mornings. What he doesn't know is that 30 minutes after he left Greenman Elementary, his wife, Amy, arrived at the school to pick him up. Amy will tell office staff that there is a, quote, family emergency, as she signs Timmy out for the day. She doesn't elaborate as to the nature of the emergency, and her behavior during this interaction raises no red flags for school staff. Amy and Timothy leave the elementary school about 8.30 a.m. Amy Pitson has only two days left to live. Around 9.30, mother and child arrive at an automotive repair shop in LaGrange, about 30 miles east of Greenman Elementary. Amy's car, a 2004 Ford Expedition, needs routine maintenance. She asks if the repair shop's courtesy vehicle could drive her and her son to the Brookfield Zoo. The zoo, also known as the Chicago Zoo, is just a couple of miles from the repair shop. Mother and son will spend hours exploring the zoo before returning to the shop at three to collect her Ford. From there, they drive north to Gurney, Illinois, where Amy checks them into the Key Lime Cove Resort and Indoor Water Park near Six Flags. 
As Amy is retrieving her car from the shop and heading north to Gurney, her husband, James, is at the school to pick up Tim. But there is no sign of his son. As he waits for Tim to appear, he learns that Amy picked him up that morning, saying there was a family emergency. James is not aware of any emergency, so he dials Amy, but she doesn't pick up. James then places calls to Amy's office, and they tell him she didn't come into work. A call to Amy's parents isn't helpful either. They have not seen or heard from their daughter. Looking back at their marriage, James reminds himself that Amy has taken off before, using the time to cool off before coming home, and he hopes that's what she's doing now. He doesn't place a call to the police. He doesn't report them missing. And this, looking back, I bet this is a move that he regrets. Mother and son spend the night at Key Lime Cove, which, if you look it up in 2020, it's changed ownership and now operates under a different name. And on the morning of May 12th, Timmy and Amy are headed north. They're leaving Illinois. They're headed to the Wisconsin Dells. The Dells are a resort area and a tourist destination which dates back to the 1850s, when visitors from the north in Milwaukee and from the south in Chicago came to the area to escape the noise and heat of the city. In 2011, when Amy arrived with her son, they were in the Dells to spend time at another family-oriented water park resort. Remember, Timmy had taken swim lessons and he really enjoyed his time in the water. Also on the 12th, James Pitson files a police report. His wife and child are missing. Friends and family join the search for Amy and Timmy, posting flyers, making calls, and keeping an eye out for Amy's blue Ford SUV. On the drive from Key Lime Cove to the Dells, Amy stopped twice. Once at 11.15 a.m., she stopped at the local Shopco store in Racine, Wisconsin. While there, she purchased children's clothing and toys using her credit card. Amy would stop again in three hours, this time in Johnson Creek, where she filled up the Ford with gas and bought beverages. Amy and her son check into the Kalahari Water Park Resort, and the pair will spend the night there. Amy is continuing to ignore calls from her husband and family. They are concerned about her and Timothy. On the morning of Friday, May 13th, and yeah... Friday the 13th, Amy and her son are seen on video in the lobby of the Kalahari Resort. This will be the last time that Timothy is seen alive. In the early afternoon of the 13th, Amy calls her mother. During the call, Alana Anderson can hear her grandson in the background of the call, Timothy saying that he's hungry. Amy tells her mother that she needs a day or two. She needs to decide what she's going to do and she reassures her mother that she and Timothy are fine. Amy's next call, it's not to her worried husband. Instead, she calls James' brother. He can hear Timothy in the background of the phone call. During the call, Amy will tell him things like, Timothy is fine. Timothy belongs to me. Timothy and I will be fine. Timothy is safe. Her call does little to reassure the Pitson family, particularly James, who just wants his son back at home. For the next several hours, there is no contact from Amy and no sign of Timothy. The last contact anyone had with Timothy Pitson is hearing him in the background of Amy's phone calls between 12.30 and 1 o'clock on Friday, May 13th. The evening of May 13th, about 7.25 p.m., 
Amy is alone as she shops at the Family Dollar Store in Winnebago, Illinois. While at the store, she purchases pens, paper, and envelopes. There is no sign of her son. This location, Winnebago, Illinois, it's two hours south of the Wisconsin Dells and about 90 minutes northwest of the Pitson family home in Aurora. A few minutes after making her purchase at the Family Dollar Store, Amy buys milk and crackers at Sullivan's Foods. Sullivan's is a locally owned grocery chain in northern Illinois. It's just yards away from the Family Dollar Store where Amy purchased stationery. The next sighting of the Amy is as she is renting a room at the Rockford Inn Motor Lodge in Rockford, Illinois. This hotel has also changed names. It is now the Alpine. The motel is located about 15 or 20 minutes east of Winnebago, and no one at the Rockford sees or hears a child with Amy. It is midday on May 14, 2011, that 43-year-old Amy Pitson is found dead in her hotel room. She has slashed her arms and her throat with a knife. In addition to cutting herself, Amy also took a large dose of antihistamines. In the room, they find no sign of Timothy or of his belongings, such as the Spider-Man backpack. Also, noticeably absent from the room are Amy's cell phone and the clothing she was wearing in the lobby footage of her and Timothy at Kalahari Resort. Investigators will find a suicide note, which is five lines long. They also find two letters. One letter is to her mother, and another is written to a friend. There is no sign of her son, and nothing to indicate he was ever in the room where his mother died. In her suicide note, Amy said, quote, You will never find him. With the discovery of Amy's body, the search for Timothy kicks into high gear. In the letter Amy left to her mother, she wrote, quote, I've taken him somewhere safe. He will be well cared for, and he says that he loves you. Please know, there is nothing you could have said or done that would have changed my mind. Amy also wrote that she was sorry for the mess she created, and I'm wondering, did she mean the mess of people's lives that she'd made? Her parents, her husband, friends, and family who were now worrying about Timmy? Or did she mean the literal mess of the room where she had taken her own life? And maybe it was a little bit of both. Amy's vehicle, the Blue Ford Expedition, is in the parking lot of the Rockford Inn. As police search through the belongings left behind, they notice more items that are missing. The clothing and toys Amy bought for Timmy. His Spider-Man backpack. A tube of Crest brand children's toothpaste. These items were never found. The Ford does not contain her cell phone or the I-Pass unit used for Illinois toll roads. As police look over her car for evidence, they note that the exterior is quite dirty. They found plant matter, like grass and weeds, trapped beneath the car. When the lab ran tests on the materials found on the undercarriage of the Ford, they concluded that the car was, quote, stopped for an unknown period of time on a wide gravel shoulder, gravel road, or short gravel turnout off of or adjacent to an asphalt secondary road. This road was at one time treated with glass road marking beads. The vehicle backed into a grassy meadow or field that was nearly treeless. Both Queen Anne's lace and black mustard plants grow in a row along the edge of this field or the shoulder of the road. I found this interesting, and 
The glass beads jumped out at me because I was not familiar with the concept. The short version is that small glass beads are applied to lines on roads to make them more reflective at night. The beads are either mixed in with the line-making material, or they are added later to make the lines show up better at night. In my experience, I see these reflective stripes on roads with poor lighting, such as in an area with few businesses and fewer streetlights, or in remote and rural areas. The report on the materials under the vehicle further clarified that this was not a farming area. There was no indication of crops being grown. This area is likely a meadow. Also worth noting, there is no sign of the greenery being cut, so this was not a lawn, a park, or a maintained area. From what they found, they strongly suspect that there is a pond, stream, or creek nearby. The report went on to say, quote, Scientists further believe that the meadow is most likely in northwestern Illinois, with Lee and Whiteside counties as the most likely locations. However, areas in Carroll, Ogle, Stevenson, and Winnebago counties cannot be ruled out. Listeners, this is an area of over 2,000 square miles, impossible to search comprehensively, and the materials they did find in the undercarriage of the Ford They are not specific enough to narrow down the location to a manageable search area. This is a good time to acknowledge the complexity of this investigation. Amy took her son from his home in Aurora, Illinois. From there, they went to Gurney, Illinois. Then they left the state headed for Wisconsin. After spending 24 hours or more in Wisconsin, Amy, and possibly Timothy, returned to Illinois. Amy was then in Sterling, Winnebago, and Rockford, Illinois. This means that investigators have half a dozen places to search for clues over two different states. Not surprisingly, they viewed Amy's vehicle as the most likely place to find evidence about Timmy's disappearance. The hotel rooms where the Pitsons slept on May 11th and 12th, they were cleaned after Amy and Timmy checked out. They were now occupied by new people. This means any evidence was contaminated. But the Ford, they knew that he had been in that vehicle and that Amy had been as well. So they scoured the SUV and they did find some additional clues. Timmy's car seat was gone. And his family is torn about the significance of this. Some said the lack of car seat and the lack of Timmy's belongings, that's a sign that Tim was left with someone. Maybe he was left the family who would take care of him a family that needed his belongings and the car seat to keep him safe. Others view the lack of Timmy's things as an ominous sign, something that says Amy got rid of Timothy. She made him disappear completely. Amy's mother, Alana Anderson, would come forward saying that she had Timmy's car seat. Amy had not done anything with it. She hadn't given it away. And as a parent, you wonder about the choice to drive around with your child unrestrained. But it's likely this never occurred to Amy in the days and hours leading up to her suicide. In the car, police found blood which belonged to Timmy. Again, this is a controversial piece of evidence. Some think the blood is from a nosebleed that he had a few weeks before he disappeared. Others think the blood points to foul play. Now, the blood did match Timmy, but... It could not be determined how long the blood was in the vehicle prior to it being found by police. Now, 
let's take a step back and look at Amy's movements on Friday, May 13th. Police used data from her iPass and her cellular phone to track her movements. We know that Amy and Timothy were at Kalahari on Friday morning. They were seen on video in the lobby around 10 a.m. Almost three hours later, just before 1 p.m., Amy is making phone calls to her mother and to her brother-in-law. And we're pretty sure Timmy was alive at the time of these calls because both her mother and her brother-in-law said that they heard him in the background of the calls. Cell phone records indicate the calls were made from an area near Sterling, Illinois, not far from Route 40. Sterling is two hours away from the Kalahari Resort, and it's almost another two hours from Winnebago, Illinois, where Amy made purchases at the Family Dollar and at Sullivan's. So when Amy left Sterling for Winnebago, she was doubling back. And the question is, why? Why drive all the way to Sterling only to turn around and go to Winnebago? Was there a reason for her to be in Sterling? Was she meeting someone? Did Amy have a destination in mind? Police went back through her iPass activities for the months before May 13th. And when they do, they learn that Amy was in Sterling, Illinois, twice previously, once on Friday, February 18th, and again on Sunday, March 20th. I want to look at these dates and see what we could possibly learn from her visits. Friday, February 18th, that was a warmer-than-average day. It was sunny, and temperatures were in the upper 40s. On February 18th, Amy should have been at work. Instead, it looks like she left work early departing from Aurora just before 4 p.m., according to her iPass, and getting to Sterling around 4.45. Amy would leave Sterling around 9 p.m., but what did she do in Sterling for four hours? Where did she spend her time? Her second visit to Sterling was on Sunday, March 20th, and this was not a good weather day. It was raining and wet, but it was, again, like it was in February, it was a warm day. Temperatures were nearly 50, which is pretty nice for northern Illinois in March. The visit on March 20th was similar in duration to the February visit. Amy arrived in Sterling at 10 a.m. and left about 3.45. Again, what is she doing in Sterling? It doesn't look like she knew anyone in the area, and it was raining most of the day, so it seems unlikely that she would take a walk or explore a park or be outside. Hoping for more information or news of a secret friend or contact, specialists dug into the computers that Amy accessed at work and at home. And despite a deep dive through her old emails, the computers offered nothing of value to investigators. They couldn't find a contact in Sterling. There was no questionable correspondence with a mysterious underground network offering to shelter her son. There was nothing. While they had some information about Amy's cell phone, they didn't have the phone itself, and they wouldn't have the phone until October of 2013, more than two years after Amy's death. The phone was found on the shoulder of Route 78, which is about 20 miles west of Sterling, Illinois. In a strange twist, the phone was actually picked up in the summer of 2011, just a couple of weeks after Amy died. The woman who found the phone took it home and stuck it in a drawer. In 2013, she gave the phone to a family member who needed a cell phone. 
When the phone was powered on, they recognized names stored in contacts and they turned the phone over to police. Unfortunately, Amy's phone provided no additional clues or leads as to what Amy was doing in Sterling, nor did it give them any idea what she could have done with her son. Amy Pitson was laid to rest at the Ascension Catholic Cemetery on Saturday, May 21st, after a service at the Church of Latter-day Saints in Sugar Grove, Illinois. Her obituary states that she is survived by her husband, James, and son, Timothy. And that's the question, isn't it? What do you think? Was Amy Pitson survived by both her son and her husband? Or is Amy responsible for the disappearance and death of her six-year-old child? On June 1st, 2011, after Timothy had been missing about two weeks, police released information about the items Amy purchased for him in the days before her death. She bought Timmy a craft kit, toy cars, a toy tractor trailer, gold coins, and children's toothpaste. None of these items were recovered. As the weeks and months passed with no sign of Timothy Pitson, investigators continued to release images and information about the case, hoping someone would speak up and reveal what they knew about the disappearance. Unfortunately for the little boy and those who loved him, no one came forward. James Pitson moved back to his hometown of Clinton, Iowa, and he adopted a dog that he named Bailey. Pitson wanted to get far away from Aurora, to get away from the community that held so many memories, good and bad. He wanted to live his life near his family and near those who love and support him. After Amy's cell phone was recovered in the fall of 2013, Timothy's case went cold and the tip line was quiet until the spring of 2019, when a young man told police that he, he was Timothy Pitson. He was the child everyone had searched for. Do you remember that day? I sure do. It was kind of amazing, because all of the true crime aficionados were on the edge of their seat, waiting for information, hoping that this, dare I call it a miracle, that it was true. That day reminded me a little bit of how social media reacted to the news that the Golden State Killer was caught. There was that same optimistic high energy. And this boy, the one who claimed to be Timothy Pitson, he said he was 14 years old and that he'd been kidnapped by two people years earlier. He described his kidnappers as male, white, with a, quote, bodybuilder-type build. He said that one of them had pearly black hair and a spider tattoo on his neck. The other man was short with a snake tattooed on his arm. He described their vehicle as a newer model Ford SUV with Wisconsin plates. Police looked at this young man. He was thin. He didn't look healthy. So they took a DNA swab with his permission, and 24 hours later, we all knew the truth. The cruel truth. This wasn't Timothy, and he wasn't 14 years old. The young man in police custody was an ex-convict named Brian Michael Reaney. Reaney was 23, and he had a criminal history of burglary, vandalism, and writing bad checks. Reaney was from Medina, Ohio, and had been released from prison in March of 2019. And I had a lot of anger toward Brian Reaney but I can only imagine the pain that Timothy's family felt after what he did. 
Timothy's father, James, did speak to the press, and he asked the question we all wanted an answer to. How could Rainey do this? In January of 2020, Brian Rainey pled guilty to a federal charge of aggravated identity theft. He was sentenced to two years in prison and after that, a year of probation. If he hadn't taken the plea, he was looking at eight years in a federal penitentiary. If there was a silver lining to Rainey's stunt, it's that once again, people are talking about Timothy Pitson. They were looking at his photo and wondering where he could be. Aurora Police Sergeant Bill Rowley gave a statement to the press, quote, Although we are disappointed that this turned out to be a hoax, we remain diligent in our search for Timothy as our missing persons case remains unsolved. Did Amy Pitson do what John Skelton claimed to have done? Did she leave Timothy with another family, safe and sound? Did she leave him in a place where he would grow up without people that loved him and without his father? If he is somewhere else, Timothy knows his name. He knows his address and his phone number. He knows how to call 911 and ask for help. His parents taught him to do these things, and they helped create an identikit with his thumbprint and his photo just months before he vanished. In fact, Timmy's identikit was found, along with Amy's belongings, in the room where her body was recovered. If he were alive and well, wouldn't Timothy have called home or identified himself to someone who would reunite him with his father? Or did Amy Pitson commit an unspeakable act of violence against her only child? We can't say. What we do know is that Timothy James Pitson, age 6, was last seen on Friday, May 13, 2011, at the Kalahari Resort in the Wisconsin Dells. At the time of his disappearance, Timothy was four foot two inches tall, 70 pounds with light brown hair and brown eyes. If you have information on his case, you can contact the Aurora, Illinois Police Department at 630-256-5000. And while this episode on missing child Timothy Pitson was released on June 1st, it was meant as part of the Missing Persons Month initiative. May is recognized as Missing Persons Awareness Month in Michigan, and each year the Missing in Michigan organization has an event to support families and to increase awareness of missing persons cases. Unfortunately, this year's event was postponed. Hopefully, we can all get together later in the year. And if you're in Michigan or want to make the drive, you're welcome to join us. Michigan has about 3,800 missing persons and about 800 of them are juveniles. Through my work with Missing in Michigan and through coverage of missing persons cases on the podcast, it is my hope that we can bring them home and reunite them with their families. Already Gone releases new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. If you would like early access to ad-free episodes, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash alreadygone. Special thanks to our researcher, Haley Gray and to the good people at Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.